This podcast is offered by the San Francisco Zen Center on the web at www.sfzc.org. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. Good morning, everybody. This morning, I'm going to read to you a letter that was written in 1963 on the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. This letter was written by James Baldwin to his nephew and namesake. It's called My Dungeon Shook from Baldwin's masterwork, The Fire Next Time. And here's the master himself. Dear James, I had begun this letter five times and torn it up five times. I keep seeing your face, which is also the face of your father and my brother. Like him, you are tough, dark, vulnerable, moody, with a very definite tendency to sound truculent because you want no one to think you are soft. You may be like your grandfather in this, I don't know, but certainly both you and your father resemble him very much physically. Well, he is dead. He never saw you and he had a terrible life. He was defeated long before he died because at the bottom of his heart, he really believed what white people said about him. This is one of the reasons that he became so holy. I am sure that your father has told you something about all that. Neither you nor your father exhibit any tendencies towards holiness. You really are of another era, part of what happened when the Negro left the land and came into what the late E. Franklin Frazier called the cities of destruction. You can only be destroyed by believing that you really are what the white world calls by the N-word. I tell you this because I love you, and please don't you ever forget it. I've known both you all your lives. I've carried your daddy in my arms and on my shoulders, kissed and spanked him and watched him learn to walk. I don't know if you've known anybody from that far back, if you've loved anybody that long, first as an infant, then as a child, then as a man. You gain a strange perspective on time and human pain and effort. Other people cannot see what I see whenever I look into your father's face, for behind your father's face, as it is today, are all those other faces which were his. Let him laugh and I see a cellar your father does not remember, and a house he does not remember, and I hear in his present laughter his laughter as a child. Let him curse, and I remember him falling down the cellar steps and howling. And I remember with pain his tears, which my hand or your grandmother's so easily wiped away. But no one's hand can wipe away those tears he sheds invisibly today, which one hears in his laughter and in his speech and in his songs. I know what the world has done to my brother and how narrowly he has survived it. And I know which is much worse. And this is the crime of which I accuse my country and my countrymen, and for which neither I nor time nor history will ever forgive them. 
that they have destroyed and are destroying hundreds of thousands of lives and do not know it and do not want to know it. One can be, indeed, one must strive to become tough and philosophical concerning destruction and death. For this is what most of mankind has been best at since we have heard of man. But it is not permissible that the authors of devastation should also be innocent. It is the innocence which constitutes the crime. Now, my dear namesake, these innocent and well-meaning people, your countrymen, have caused you to be born under conditions not very far removed from those described for us by Charles Dickens in the London of more than a hundred years ago. I hear the chorus of the innocent screaming, no, this is not true, how bitter you are. But I am writing this letter to you to try to tell you something about how to handle them. For most of them do not yet really know that you exist. I know the conditions under which you were born, for I was there. Your countrymen were not there and haven't made it yet. Your grandmother was also there, and no one has ever accused her of being bitter. I suggest that the innocents check with her. She isn't hard to find. Your countrymen don't know that she exists either, though she has been working for them all their lives. Well, you were born, here you came, something like 15 years ago. And though your father, mother, and grandmother, looking about the streets through which they were carrying you, staring at the walls into which they brought you, had every reason to be heavy-hearted, yet they were not. For here you were, Big James, named for me. You were a big baby, I was not. Here you were to be loved. To be loved, baby, hard, at once, and forever, to strengthen you against the loveless world. Remember that. I know how black it looks today for you. It looked bad that day too. Yes, we were trembling. We have not stopped trembling. But if we had not loved each other, none of us would have survived. And now you must survive because we love you. And for the sake of your children and your children's children. This innocent country set you down in a ghetto in which, in fact, it intended that you should perish. Let me spell out precisely what I mean by that. For the heart of the matter is here and the root of my dispute with my country. You were born where you were born and faced the future that you faced because you were black and for no other reason. The limits of your ambition were thus expected to be set forever. You were born into a society which spelled out with brutal clarity and in as many ways as possible that you were a worthless human being. You were not expected to aspire to excellence. You were not expected to make peace with mediocrity. Wherever you have turned, James, in your short time on this earth, you have been told where you could go and what you could do and how you could do it and where you could live and whom you could marry. I know your countrymen do not agree with me about this and I hear them saying, you exaggerate. They do not know Harlem and I do and so do you. Take no one's word for anything, including mine, but trust your experience. Know whence you came. If you know whence you came, there is really no limit to where you can go. The details and symbols of your life have been deliberately constructed to make you believe what white people say about you. 
please try to remember that what they believe as well as what they do and cause you to endure does not testify to your inferiority, but to their inhumanity and fear. Please try to be clear, dear James, through the storm which rages about your youthful head today, about the reality which lies behind the words acceptance and integration. There is no reason for you to try to become like white people, and there is no basis whatever for their impertinent assumption that they must accept you. The really terrible thing, old buddy, is that you must accept them. And I mean that very seriously. You must accept them and accept them with love. For these innocent people have no other hope. They are, in effect, still trapped in a history which they do not understand. And until they understand it, they cannot be released from it. They have had to believe for many years and for innumerable reasons that black men are inferior to white men. Many of them indeed know better, but as you will discover, people find it very difficult to act on what they know. To act is to be committed, and to be committed is to be in danger. In this case, the danger in the minds of most white Americans is the loss of their identity. Try to imagine how you would feel if you woke up one morning to find the sun shining and all the stars aflame. You would be frightened because it is out of the order of nature. Any upheaval in the universe is terrifying because it so profoundly attacks one's sense of one's own reality. Well, the black man has functioned in the white man's world as a fixed star, as an immovable pillar. And as he moves out of his place, heaven and earth are shaken to their foundations. You don't be afraid. I said that it was intended that you should perish in the ghetto, perish by never being allowed to go behind the white man's definitions, by never being allowed to spell your proper name. You have, and many of us have, defeated this intention. And by a terrible law, a terrible paradox, those innocents who believed that your imprisonment made them safe are losing their grip of reality. But these men are your brothers, your lost younger brothers. And if the word integration means anything, this is what it means. That we, with love, shall force our brothers to see themselves as they are, to cease fleeing from reality and begin to change it. For this is your home, my friend. Do not be driven away from it. Great men have done great things here and will again. And we can make America what America must become. It will be hard, James, but you come from sturdy peasant stock, men who picked cotton and dammed rivers and built railroads, and in the teeth of the most terrifying odds, achieved an unassailable and monumental dignity. You come from a long line of great poets, some of the greatest poets since Homer. One of them said, the very time I thought I was lost, my dungeon shook and my chains fell off. You know, and I know, that the country is celebrating 100 years of freedom, 100 years too soon. We cannot be free until they are free. God bless you, James, and Godspeed. Your uncle, James.
now what? Now what? Where do we go from this place where we, and by we, I mean those of us racialized as white people. We've been located and defended for the entirety of our lives by our parents and our police, by our army, our government, our presidents, defended behind the boundaries of our property, our wealth, our education, our laws, and our mythology for over 400 years. The game we're playing here in this country and in this world has been rigged in our favor. And therefore it is up to us, the ones who rigged it, not only to yield and to listen, but to actively engage in changing the rules towards something our better selves would recognize as fair play. And more than that, rules that would establish as their primary values, compassion, and wisdom. Buddha's rules. We know, as James Baldwin said, and again, I am speaking to those of you, like me, racialized as white, that we are innocent and well-meaning people. How does that sound? Innocent and well-meaning. Doesn't sound so good, does it? Not anymore. For as he also said, it's innocence that constitutes the crime. So now what? Now what now? Given the life I've chosen for myself, I have no other recourse than to look to the teachings of the ancestors, and not only the ancestors in the Buddhist tradition, but in all traditions, teachings that are, that are as fresh and relevant today as they have been for long over 10,000 years. When we look at those teachings, the teachings of Shakyamuni Buddha, Suzuki Roshi, Toni Morrison, Angel Kyoto Williams, Zenju Earth Emmanuel, James Baldwin, and all the other compassionate and heart-sick humans, what they are always talking about is just two things, suffering and the cessation of suffering. These wise humans are in truth the world's great physicians. They have diagnosed our illness and prescribed a cure and not as some abstract philosophy, but as street wisdom in a world where oppression and violence and injustice are as prevalent now as they were in the Buddha's day. What James Baldwin calls our innocence, the Buddha called our ignorance, or as Jesus said from the cross, forgive them, Lord, they know not what they do. So behind that opaque veil of ignorance, the crimes that got many of us to this privileged place in history are hidden from our view. In 2001, shortly after what we call 9-11, His Holiness the Dalai Lama said, don't look for blame, look for causes. In other words, find the roots of the illness that is killing black people in this country and by and by will be killing us all. These roots are well known among Buddhists as the three poisons, greed, hatred, and ignorance. Poisons that are deeply embedded in a culture that makes whiteness supreme. It is beyond all doubt that we will leave this poisonous legacy for the generations to come unless we do something, a very real something, each and every day, starting now. Here at Green Gulch, there is this insidious plant called bindweed that invades our soil and eventually chokes our crops, 
I've spent several hours recently trying to uproot patches of bindweed, which are never hard to find. The best one can hope for is a single longish root grown up from a vast underground network, the progenitor of all bindweed. And just like beginningless greed, hatred, and ignorance, bindweed like racism will thrive as long as we neglect what is sprouting in our gardens and in each of our own hearts. It's easy for me to think at times like this when I am feeling discouraged like this, that our world under the dominance of the human species is truly beyond repair, and maybe so. And yet at the very same time, I was reminded of a particular story from the old wisdom teachings of the Pali Canon spoken by the Buddha 2,500 years ago, a story about a skillful turning toward justice and kindness that the Buddha brought about in a petty tyrant of his day. This story is just a story. However, it's stories themselves that we pass on to our children, hopefully stories about how goodness in the end wins the day. Thus have I heard. At Savati, King Pasendi of Kosala approached the Buddha in the middle of the day and on arrival, having bowed down, sat to one side. As he was sitting there, the Blessed One said to him, Well now, great king, where are you coming from in the middle of the day? The king replied, Just now, Lord, I was engaged in the sort of royal affairs typical of noble warrior kings, intoxicated with sovereignty and obsessed by greed for sensual pleasure. I maintain control of my country by conquering a great sphere of territory on the earth. To which the Blessed One then said, what do you think, great king? Suppose a person trustworthy and reliable were to come to you from the east and on arrival would say, if it please your majesty, you should know that I come from the east. There I saw a great mountain as high as the clouds coming this way, crushing all living beings in its path. Do whatever you think should be done. Then a second person were to come to you from the west, a third from the north, a fourth from the south. And on arrival, each would say, if it please you, your majesty, you should know that I saw a great mountain as high as the clouds coming this way, crushing all living beings. Do whatever you think should be done. If great king, the Buddha then asked, such a great peril should arise, such a terrible destruction of human life, the human state being so hard to obtain, what should be done? The king replied, if Lord Buddha, such a great peril should arise, such a terrible destruction of human life, what else should be done but to live by truth, by right conduct, skillful actions and meritorious deeds so it is, great king, so it is. As aging and death are rolling in on you, what else should be done but to live by truth, by right conduct, skillful actions and meritorious deeds? Having said that, the world-honored one, the teacher, further said this. Like massive boulders, mountains pressing against the sky, moving in from all sides, crushing the four directions, so aging and death come rolling over living beings, noble warriors, Brahmins, merchants, workers, outcasts, and scavengers. 
They spare nothing. They trample everything. Here, elephant troops can hold no ground, nor can chariots or infantry, nor can a battle of wits or wealth win out. So a wise person, seeing their own good, steadfast, secures confidence in the Buddha, in the Dharma, and in the Sangha. One who practices the Dharma in thought, word, and deed receives praise here on earth and ends their days in peaceful rest. So I don't know if any of you found this story comforting or not. Actually, I don't think it's intended to be comforting, but rather to be an encouragement to turn toward the so-called facts of life. The one huge fact being that nothing and no one continues forever. And yet here we are together, at least temporarily, in a miraculous and continuously transforming appearance that we call reality. We can't really point at reality or bottle it. We can't possess it or even give it away. It's not for sale. However, we can look deeply into reality in wonder and in awe. And we can recognize that there are, there are choices to be made about our life and how we pass our days. According to the Buddha, those choices follow particular patterns called karma. The word karma itself meaning action. Actions coming from causes and in turn creating effects, cause and effect. As the Buddha famously said in a verse from the Dhammapada, the path of truth, what we are today comes from our thoughts of yesterday and our present thoughts will build our life of tomorrow. Our life is a creation of our mind. The basic law of cause and effect is fairly simple. Good actions lead to good outcomes and bad actions do not. Reminding ourselves again of the Dalai Lama's teaching, don't look for blame, look for causes. I'm not sure we've gotten around to that as yet. It seems like we, the innocent, are still in the midst of a prolonged period of denial and revenge, maybe starting way back in our evolutionary history to when the very first living cells began taking bites out of one another. Regardless of who started it and who we'd like to blame, there must be some other way, some time or place when the killing can be brought to an end. And so we must choose, each of us inside our own hearts, with our own voices and by our own hands, we have to choose which side we are on. One being the side of greed, hatred, and delusion, and the other of compassion, morality, and wisdom. I'm not pretending that the issues of police violence and ancestral hatred can be easily transformed by those of us here in this room today, although that would be very nice. I'm only proposing that each one of us needs to know for ourselves, as did the warrior King Pasendi, what we're going to do with this one and most likely only precious life, given that our time on earth is short and our legacy truly is at hand. Now, I don't know how it is for all of you, but for me, this threat of mountains closing in, the metaphor the Buddha uses to remind us of our mortality is most importantly about our morality, the ethical foundation upon which we stake our lives. The basic thing I'm talking about this morning 
is the very same thing we were always talking about here at the Zen Center and that the Buddha was talking about during his 80 years of life among the villages of Northern India and what James Baldwin is talking about in his essay to modern day America. And that is that there is a choice to be made. We can choose to be awake while we live. We can choose to be nonviolent and generous, inclusive, moral, patient, focused, and wise. And that is because we humans are not things, solid things that are set in stone. We are processes, meaning a natural and for the most part involuntary series of changes, in particular the biological journey from our birth to our death. And while we don't control the earth, water, fire, or air, we don't control aging, illness, death, hatred, greed, or ignorance, we are made of those forces and we are made to meet them. Our bodies are built to sit upright under the weight of gravity. Our eyes, hands, ears, and mouth face forward in search of food, in search of love, and in search of a safe place to spend the night. And we have the mammal's instinct to nurture and protect our young. And still we have to choose the same choices that have been there before us all along simple choices. But as Birdness Roshi said from up in his tree when he was asked by a monk the secret of Buddhist practice, do good, avoid evil, and purify your mind. To which the monk responded, well, that's easy. Even a child of three can understand that. Birdness then replied, yes, a child of three can understand it, but a person of 80 years may not be able to practice it. The monk's question is the same that's being asked of us now. What is the secret of Buddhist practice? A question that's being aimed at the very heart of our innocence. Our community is expecting more from us, the leadership, than is being given, much more. They are demanding the just slaughter of our innocence, and rightfully so. The ugly reality of institutional racism that persists and continues to result in deadly consequences and repeated trauma for black Americans is evil. Murder is evil. Abuse of power is evil. Silence in the face of evil is complicity. Complicity is evil. We must stand with those whose lives are impacted by police brutality and with those who are speaking out publicly about injustice. We must call for and encourage the harnessing of our skills as meditators and Dharma teachers to demand enforcement of just laws. And we must not forget that we have promised to do so because that truly is our greatest sin. We forget, just as my parents forgot and their parents forgot and I forgot. And through forgetting our children will be born into innocence once again. I read this book by James Baldwin when I was a junior in high school nearly 60 years ago. And now I read it again today. The prophecy is unchanged. And yet beneath the running tones of anger and fear and grief, this eloquent, courageous, and deeply spiritual man holds up a mirror to our innocence and begs us to look and then to see. Some closing words from the final essay in James Baldwin's book, 
called Down at the Cross, letter from a region in my mind. When I was very young and was dealing with my buddies in those wine and urine stained hallways, something in me wondered, what will happen to all that beauty? For black people, though I am aware that some of us, black and white, do not know it, are very beautiful. I wonder when talk of God or Allah's vengeance has been achieved, what will happen to all that beauty? I could also see that the intransigence and ignorance of the white world might make that vengeance inevitable, a vengeance that does not really depend on and cannot really be executed by any person or organization, and that cannot be prevented by any police force or army. Historical vengeance, a cosmic vengeance, based on the law that we recognize when we say, whatever goes up must come down. And here we are at the center of the ark, trapped in the gaudiest, most valuable, and most improbable water wheel the world has ever seen. Everything now we must assume is in our hands. We have no right to assume otherwise. If we, and now I mean the relatively conscious whites and the relatively conscious blacks, who must, like lovers, insist on or create the consciousness of the others, do not falter in our duty now. We may be able, handful that we are, to end the racial nightmare and achieve our country and change the history of the world. If we do not now dare everything, the fulfillment of that prophecy recreated from the Bible in song by a slave is upon us. God gave Noah the rainbow sign no more water, the fire next time. I'm gonna end this talk with what I have been taught is the Hawaiian practice for forgiveness and reconciliation. Ho'oponopono. I am sorry, please forgive me. Thank you, I love you. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the San Francisco Zen Center. Our programs are made possible by the donations we receive. Please help us to continue to realize and actualize the practice of giving by offering your financial support. For more information, visit sfzc.org and click Giving. May we fully enjoy the Dharma.